This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham, the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, joined me to talk about the latest in federal politics, including what we know about tomorrow's federal budget. Then, human rights advocate and barrister Geoffrey Robertson QC joined me to discuss his new book, Bad People and How to Be Rid of Them, A Plan B for Human Rights. Jeffrey talks in depth about the Magnitsky Laws, which have been adopted by 31 countries worldwide. They provide a way to enact targeted sanctions against individuals who commit crimes against humanity and serious corruption. Then, finally, Dr Chloe Ward, historian and research officer at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT, joined me to discuss the results of Scotland's election, as well as the political fallout in Britain, and the renewed push for a second referendum on Scottish independence. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with me, Amy Mullins. And uh, I'm delighted that we have just got Ben on the line and we're going to talk all about federal politics. That is Ben Eltham and he's the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda. We're going to be looking at all the pre-budget politicking that's going on. And there is plenty of it, as is tradition in federal politics. We get a very steady leak of budget announcements before the budget is delivered at 7.30pm tonight by the Federal Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. So there is quite a lot to discuss, although we won't know the full picture of the budget and some of the assumptions that are underpinning it until we do get to see the detail. But as uh, a lot of the Canberra Press Gallery is up in the lockup right now, we're talking to Ben Eltham, who has managed to escape lockup. Hi there, Ben. Yeah, morning, Amy. How are you, mate? I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah, that's right. I'm not going to the lockup this year. Um, you know, I've decided to uh, stay, stay in Victoria. We'll look it out from there. Indeed. And uh, it is an interesting um, scenario for those who don't know what the budget lockup is. It's this weird situation where you put, usually, um, maybe there's more social distancing this year, but usually you put a whole group of journalists in a room, you take away their phones um, so that they can't call people, and they get the hard copy budget to leaf through and examine in detail so that they can prepare their budget analysis uh, before the Treasurer speaks. And then once he has spoken, it's like they knew all of this information for quite a while. So it is a really interesting process, but it does at least give uh, the journalists a chance to examine some of the forecasts that do underpin the budget. Ben, to start off this conversation, the Australian economy obviously has been a focus in a sense because we know that we've heard this talk for years and years, and we've discussed this before about debt and de- deficit and how the budget was going to be back in the black um, basically, you know, last year. Obviously, COVID-19 intervened, and the government has certainly taken a very different economic approach. So, uh, we're looking at right now, um, in terms of confidence, unemployment figures and growth figures, where are we at broadly? Well, we're at a recovery, basically. Um, So the economy was indeed obviously affected pretty badly by the pandemic last year, um, and that led to a pretty sharp contraction during 2020 as the economy shut down 
for social distancing and you know pandemic measures. Um, but the latest, the latest news has been pretty positive on the economy. The economy's added a lot of jobs very quickly, um, particularly in 2021. Um, and the budget itself, the federal budget, has you know remarkably improved. So um, Josh Ryderberg is going to have a lot of good news to announce in tonight's budget papers uh, in terms of the, the economic growth forecasts and where things are at compared to the depths of the pandemic recession last year, things are looking a lot better. Indeed, and I know that the government is looking at um, forecasts for the unemployment rate of under 5%, and people have made comparisons to the previous financial crisis we were in with the global financial crisis where unemployment rates were looking at between 5.5% and 6.5%. Um, do you think that this kind of the, the focus on unemployment rate of being around four percent is, um, I guess, a better target and a realistic target for the government to actually have? Because they are slating a number of programs and uh, major investments that I believe and they believe um, should stimulate the economy, infrastructure spending, aged care spending, uh, spending in childcare. So they are. I guess, seeking to stimulate the economy and by virtue of that to actually boost employment. So what do people, what is the government really doing when it's aiming for a 4% unemployment rate? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess we'll find out tonight, but um, it's worth pointing out that the, the government flooded the economy with stimulus last year, right? So the JobKeeper stimulus was the largest peacetime stimulus in the history of the Australian federal government. It was a truly enormous spend, right? Um, upwards of $100 billion. Um, most of that flowed to business and then on through business to ordinary employees. So there was a huge amount of money washed through the economy and that the economy is still benefiting from that stimulus uh, even today. Now, that's, that stimulus is starting to taper off, it's starting to wind down. The government has removed JobKeeper now pretty much um, you know, across the board. Um, but people still have a lot of cash in their pockets. You know, people who kept a job last year through the depths of the pandemic have saved a lot of money, and the government's hoping that they'll now spend that money in 2021 and 2022, which will drive economic growth and then lead on to, obviously, what they hope is a falling unemployment rate. Um, now, unemployment is currently at about 5% and falling, and there's a debate amongst economists about just how low unemployment can go. Well, you know, the answer to that probably is uh, let's try and find out. You know, the lower unemployment is, uh, the better, all things considered. So um, the focus will be on what the government's settings are going forward, um, how they're going to wind back the stimulus, and, you know, what they're going to do about some of the big-picture economic issues and social issues that they haven't addressed through the pandemic, you know, so one of the issues that people are talking about is aged care. This will be the first budget after the Aged Care Royal Commission. What will the government do there? There's clearly a big need to spend more money to improve services there. And there's a whole bunch of other areas where there are clearly big problems. Another one is housing affordability. Um, you know, and that's just two. So there's, there's all sorts of stuff that you have to comb through the budget papers to have a look at to see what the fine print says. 
Indeed. Well, there does appear to be around $8 billion that's going to be put towards aged care. Uh, We'll have to see how that's actually been apportioned, but some people are saying it needs to also be accompanied by legislative changes and systemic changes which were advocated um, from the Royal Commission report. That's uh, one area where there's been a little bit of critique of what we've um, come to know will be part of the budget. Another area that we've discussed in the past was childcare, which affects all people who have children in Australia. Um, There's going to be a $1.7 billion childcare subsidy boost, um, which the coalition government says will assist 250,000 families. But as childcare sector advocates have pointed out, there are almost 1 million families that use childcare. And many have said that this is kind of, um, although it's welcome, it's really not what's actually needed. From someone who actually has children themselves, Ben, and uses childcare and, of course, no doubt knows others who are using this service, what are your thoughts on these changes and how they might actually improve things and uh, at least household budgets for people who have more than one child? Yeah, so I think it's sort of tinkering around the edges on childcare. Um, Once again, we have to wait to see what the package actually is. Um, But, you know, we're a long way away from what I think we should have, which is basically universal free childcare in this country. Uh, The government is definitely going to tip a bit of money in and it's going to help uh, at the margins, particularly for families who have a number of children in childcare, which, of course, can get pretty expensive pretty quickly. Um, but I don't think it's going to solve the big picture problems of childcare, particularly in Australia's cities, the big cities where childcare places can be pretty hard to get. Um, and also for um, two income families, which um, face a, a cut off in their childcare subsidy uh, above a certain level that imposes a pretty high effective marginal tax, uh, particularly on, on women entering the workplace. Uh, so, you know, these are problems that we've known about for a long time. Uh, And you might remember that there was a period there back in 2020 during the pandemic when the government just funded free childcare for everyone. I thought that was pretty good, you know, and I I think it it sort of uh, puzzles me that we can't simply realise that that was a successful experiment and maybe give it a go. Um, But, of course, that's not the coalition way. They like to means test things and they like to try and be frugal, at least with certain parts of the budget. Yes, it is all about where the frugality is applied versus um, where tax cuts might be applied. One uh, particular comment that Anthony Albanese, the opposition leader, has come out and said, and of course he also is advocating for universal free childcare, he says that it's, quote, like a showbag budget, it looks pretty flashy, but when you take it home, it only lasts a few days. He then also goes to say it's all smirk and mirrors. I mean, these are, you know, some kind of um, zingers, I guess. You could almost say they're shortened zingers. But um, what are your thoughts on how the opposition is talking about uh, budgetary spending and have they, you know, made any kind of gains in terms of the critique of the government pushing them towards doing some things they may not have done without political pressure? Uh, In a word, no. Um, The opposition has not exerted very much pressure on the government in recent times. Um, You know, despite leading in the polls, I should should point out, um, 
uh, the Morrison government's had a pretty easy run-up to this budget, and I expect this budget will be well-received by the media. Um, it's always hard being in opposition. When Labor was in government, they were attacked mercilessly for their deficits. Well, this is the largest deficit ever, essentially. I think Frydenberg will be unveiling something like a $160 billion deficit tonight, and no-one's going to bat an eyelid, um, which kind of does sort of... Uh, it's quite extraordinary if you go back 10 years and remember just how badly Wayne Swan was attacked um, by the coalition for um, much more moderate deficits. Uh, but this is the problem being uh, the Labor Party, basically. They're held to a different standard. Um, the coalition can get away with fiscal profligacy that the Labor Party can't get away from, can't get away with. Um, and, and I think also Labor's, you know, doesn't really know what to do in terms of what sort of policies to put forward, whether to run a small target in the run-up to next year's election or whether to go big with a set of big policies. I guess we'll find out when Anthony Albanese gives the budget reply speech on Thursday night. It'll be interesting to see what he unveils in that speech. Indeed it will. And around, I guess, the timing for an election, when we saw so many scandals relating uh, broadly to women uh, and obviously Scott Morrison's highly inadequate response to these scandals around, uh, for example, Brittany Higgins and the allegation of rape in Parliament House, we have seen the government now place a focus on women um, who make up around 51% of this country. Um, and he certainly has come out across the last few days to announce policies that the coalition believes will benefit women more than it benefits men. And some of those areas that they've uh, pointed out have been areas like women's health. Um, and of course, they've mentioned childcare, although we know that that doesn't benefit women solely. It is important that men could be um, primary carers as well. Uh, there's also some areas, uh, a kind of major area, which is superannuation, which will certainly benefit women because the $450 threshold uh, that all people who are working need to make, meet uh, in order to be paid superannuation by their employer um, has been removed. And that is a major uh, advance for not just women, but also anyone who is in insecure, casual or part-time work. So that does appear to be uh, a positive in the budget. Yeah, news leaked out about that yesterday, and that is actually a very welcome reform. So um, whatever the reason why the government's decided to finally act on this, I mean, they've had eight years. It's been a problem for a long time. Um, what this is, by the way, is this sort of $450 minimum, whereby if you earn less than that figure in a calendar month, your employer didn't have to pay super, uh, the, you know, 9.5% that all employers have to pay. Uh, now they're getting rid of that, supposedly, according to media reports. That will be huge, uh, particularly for, as you mentioned, women, casual workers, uh, people in low-wage industries like the arts and recreation. Um, that's been a big problem for people for a long time where they, where they might have, like, little jobs here and there. You know, across a year, that adds up to an income for them. But they weren't getting the, the super uh, that, you know, many higher-paid uh, employees were getting um, and that's been a big problem particularly for women who as we know have much lower superannuation balances across their lifetime so that is a welcome reform and I, I hope to see the details of that later tonight. Mm. 
Are there any particular areas you're going to be looking at closely, Ben, in terms of uh, things that you think the government might finally take action on? Because as you say, it has been eight years. Um, so I'm going to be looking at aged care carefully. Um, as I mentioned before, this is the first budget after the Aged Care Royal Commission. We need to know what the government is doing there. That's really important. Um, I'm going to be looking at defence. The Morrison government is committed to a massive arms build-up in the last couple of years. They are spending literally hundreds of billions of dollars on new planes and ships and things for the army. Um, so I'm going to be looking at that very carefully. Uh, there are a range of measures that I think need to be looked at in the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the NDIS. Uh, there's been a lot of reporting coming out over the last month about the government's attempts to essentially impose austerity on the NDIS to cut back on government spending in that area. Some people think really that they're kind of ripping the heart out of what the NDIS is meant to be. It's meant to be a broad, cradle-to-grave welfare state subsidy to help people with disabilities. Uh, and instead, the Morrison government is committed to radically cutting back on the spending in that, in that agency, the NDIA. So that will be a really important one too. Yes, they are uh, forecasts that the NDIS may cost or have costs rivaling Medicare within three years, although we did see Bruce Bonnyhady come out and say that uh, it's only a new thing that you've somehow decided that the NDIS is going to be unsustainable because previous reports from the NDIA have not kind of intimated that and sounded an alarm. So it, it, is, it is interesting that all of a sudden it's going to be unsustainable. Ben, let's talk also about an issue that has certainly taken up a lot of airtime and for a good enough, certainly an excellent reason, and that is the ban on citizens and permanent residents of Australia coming back from India, which is currently in the midst of an absolute crisis where we're seeing around 360,000 to 400,000 positive cases a day and many, many deaths. We did also see that a permanent resident of Australia has died of coronavirus just recently in India. There are a lot of criticisms of the Morrison government for placing this ban, and not just the ban, but of course also uh, putting in place very harsh penalties of jail time or a large fine. And we have seen that there is a challenge in the federal court, um, which yesterday really uh, at least half of it was struck down by the judge. So where are we at with this issue? Because it seems that um, the coalition believes that their policy is actually going quite well with voters, but is it really? And uh, is this, I guess, a, the best strategy a government could take with about 9,000 of its own citizens over there stranded in India? Yeah, this is really interesting, I think. Um, the government has obviously prided itself on its tough border rhetoric, really, for the entire life of the Morrison government. Remember that Morrison came to office as the, the tough, hard-line immigration minister who claimed to stop the boats. Um, so this is on a piece of the, the Morrison government's rhetoric, really, for the whole time. Um, where they were blindsided, I think, they were surprised that people actually, for once, uh, and maybe for the first time in eight years... Um, you know, people were pretty upset about it and people were, I think, in many cases even disgusted uh, by the Morrison government's move uh, to threaten jail, to, in fact, impose biosecurity regulations on returning citizens. 
Um, you know, finally, I think a lot of Australians realised that this rhetoric about borders and being tough on border security has impacts and it actually does start to affect uh, people like us, uh, including Australian citizens. Uh, so I think the Morrison government was actually surprised by the backlash. Um, a very good article by George McLeanus in the Nine Facts papers this week pointed out that uh, people people of Indian background are now the second largest group of migrants in the Australian population. A very large number of Australians' permanent residents are Indian. Uh, and so there's real electoral implications of a move like this. Um, having said that, you know, I think uh, in the end, uh, the government will stay the course on this. They will continue to have tough borders because what they don't have is a viable quarantine policy. So in the absence of a proper vaccination rollout and in the absence of uh, a proper infrastructure to deal with returning travellers, they kind of have no choice but to impose these bans as really their kind of uh, third-line uh, way of dealing with incoming pandemic threats. Uh, and it highlights, I think, the problems that the Morrison government has got itself into with its very slow vaccine rollout. I mean, we are not going to be vaccinated in this country in a serious way until 2022. Uh, and I think there are real risks, political risks, for Morrison later this year. If there's a proper third wave in Australia, if there's another outbreak... Um, people are going to be looking very closely at the Morrison government's performance in regards to the vaccines. Absolutely. And you mentioned there um, the quarantine system and there's been so much conversation and speculation around that, um, given that the federal government is technically responsible for quarantine. We have seen the states pick it up and do a much better job um, than the Morrison government has at all because they have not been interested in doing quarantine and have even slated at times having home quarantine instead of hotel quarantine. We've now seen the Morrison government name the Howard Springs quarantine facility as the Centre for National Resilience, uh, which is owned by the federal government but will still be run by the Northern Territory government. And we have seen alongside that uh, name announcement uh, an announcement that places would increase from 850 to 2,000 in the next few weeks. What are your thoughts on that announcement and I guess mm -hmm. the Morrison government thinking that it's sufficient to actually show that they're taking action and improving the situation so Australians might eventually get home? Yeah, well, it's not enough. Um, and the government has had 15 months now. You know, it's now May 2021. Uh, we, kn we knew about this threat back in February last year. Um, they've had lots of evidence from Victoria. Victoria had an entire commission of inquiry about what went wrong in Victorian hotel quarantine. Um, they've had plenty of experience from around the world. They should know what to do, and really there's no excuse for them not to have got on with the job. Um, and so now they're paying, really, for their very slow uh, response to this problem. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Australians overseas. There's a lot of Australians who want to come back who can't. Uh, and that's before you even talk about the, you know, medium-term problems to the Australian economy of essentially permanently closed borders. What does that mean for our universities? What does that mean for our tourism sector? You know, while the broader economy is roared back in a kind of V-shaped recovery, um, there's plenty of parts that aren't doing so well, and that includes the universities, which have lost tens of thousands of 
uh, high-skilled, high-wage jobs. The tourism sector is still struggling, particularly in places like North Queensland. You know, what are the government going to do about these issues? Uh, keeping the borders closed indefinitely is not a viable policy. Eventually, we're going to have to open up. So what are they going to do about that? We still haven't really heard. Oh, I think we've just lost Ben briefly there. Ben, can you hear us? Hello. Hello. There you are. Yeah, I can hear you. We just lost you for the last five seconds. Uh, My apologies. Yeah, so basically what I was saying is, you know, um, we still haven't really Mm -hmm. heard a viable policy from the Morrison government about what they're doing. No, we certainly haven't. And one of the other um, issues that you've just raised there is, of course, the fact that the borders are going to be closed and government ministers have said it will be well into 2022. They haven't committed yet as to where that would be. But, of course, that is all tied to vaccination and the fact that uh, the federal government has really decided um, that it's okay for Australians to not be vaccinated quickly, um, that we won't get vaccinated by the targets that they initially set and that we now don't even really have vaccination targets. There's just this kind of loose, vague idea that we'll eventually get there once Novavax comes through sometime in the end of the year, once we get the additional doses from Pfizer sometime at the end of the year. So, I mean, this seems also uh, quite absurd, really, to be in a, a position where this was the one deliverable that the federal government was really staking their reputation on a number of months ago and spending endless press conferences talking about, and yet they've kind of um, walked back from that and are trying to pretend like everything's all good and, you know, we're happy to uh, leave things as they are and keep the borders shut. Yeah, it's a huge risk because at some point there will be another outbreak and at that point, you know... We're going to have to go into a lockdown again, probably. Uh, what What is that going to do to the economy? What is that going to do to affected sectors? Well, it's, it's going to damage them, you know. So, um, you know, I had a look at the American statistics this morning. America has vaccinated 152 million people already. Uh, Australia is limping along at about 2 million. Um, now we've had supply issues. Yes, we haven't had access to all the vaccine that we would have liked to have had, but... You know, it's still pretty poor performance. Um, And whatever you say about the Morrison government, you know, this is exactly one of the things that they absolutely said that they were going to do and they haven't done it. Mm, Indeed. Um, And, Ben, just finally, when we're thinking about all of these, uh, I guess, bungles and controversies and um, complete missteps by the Morrison government, and they have been happening, I mean, for the whole time, but certainly they've been in quick succession in the past few months. Um, What do you think or how much damage do you think has been done especially to women voters? Because we have seen polling showing that so many women have uh, turned away from the coalition uh, and yet apparently a great deal of men, male voters, have not. Uh, So it seems like there is an increasing segregation um, in the population, at least along gender lines, around uh, what the government has been doing and particularly um, Scott Morrison as well as Andrew Lamming as well as many others' lack of empathy and understanding for women and their experiences. Yeah, that's an interesting question, Amy. I think the only viable answer there is I don't know. Um, There's no doubt that the polls show that the coalition is suffering with female voters. 
Um, whether that's going to hurt them in the long term, I think, is very much open to question. Um, so we're going to have to wait and see. Um, and you're right to point out that while they're losing female voters, they seem to be very strong with male voters. And that's been baked in for a while, actually. Um, Coalition won male voters um, by something like 10 points in 2019 and the 2019 election. That's a huge discrepancy. So this is a very blokey government, and it's a government that's very comfortable with presenting a kind of blokey male exterior because they believe that it's electorally popular. Um, that's a quite a sobering uh, sobering analysis, but um, it appears to be borne out by the uh, polling statistics. Mm. I remember seeing reported in the Fin Review that, uh, in fact, it was only when they started to lose women voters in the suburbs that they started to worry and ring alarm bells because they weren't particularly concerned, apparently, um, when it was the tertiary-educated young women voters that they were losing. Yeah, well, no, indeed, maybe they didn't have many of those to begin with. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's rather know, cynical, it, though, isn't it? Is it? Always... <laughs> this government is nothing if not cynical, Amy. Yeah. Indeed. Well, let's leave it there because it's probably the right point to leave it on and uh, we'll actually get to find out just how cynical tonight at 7.30 when we see the budget and, as you say, we can also watch Labor's budget reply, which is usually still quite indicative of where they might go in the future and, as you said, there is an election looming, whether that's at the end of this year or sometime in 2022. So thank you so much, Ben, for chatting with us and talking all things pre-budget. Thanks, Amy. I appreciate it. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome onto the program Jeffrey Robertson QC, who needs no introduction, but I will give a very brief one. Jeffrey Robertson is a lawyer, he's a trial counsel and human rights advocate, among many other roles that he's had, including being a UN war crimes judge and a counsel in many Old Bailey trials. Jeffrey Robertson QC is also known to many Australians for the work that he does in his books, uh, one of which we'll be discussing today and one that's also very well known potentially to you being Crimes Against Humanity and also for his work on television and radio, including Jeffrey Robertson's Hypotheticals, which I'm sure so many of you listening would have seen in your time. And the book that we're going to be discussing today is Jeffrey Robertson's brand new one just been released. It's called Bad People and How to Be Rid of Them, A Plan B for Human Rights. And it's out through Vintage, which is an imprint of Penguin. So I welcome Jeffrey now, who is currently in Australia. And hi there, Jeffrey. Hello, Amy. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Not at all. 
Now, this book, I have had the absolute delight to read through it all, and it is a very compelling book, um, beautifully written as always. But I do want to get into some of the nitty gritty of these issues because there is a lot of complexity and detail, and I think it uh, certainly is helpful to get into that and to draw out some of the issues that arise. But first of all, let's set the scene. Given you've worked in international law and also human rights for so long, and you know, this is an area that you've spoken about and written about in great depth. I'm really interested in this idea that we've had a plan A and you take us through the history of international law and human rights in the 20th century, for example, and even prior. um, And you talk about the Nuremberg trial as being a really pivotal point in our international law. I wonder if you could share with us this idea of the Plan A and what the Plan A has been in terms of dealing with people who have committed atrocities and crimes against humanity. Well, the Nuremberg trial was a turning point. It was the creation of international criminal law to put those guilty of crimes against humanity, the Nazi leaders in that case, uh, into custody. And so that was the iconic beginning of international criminal law. But, of course, it was succeeded by the Cold War, and things got pretty frozen in the Cold War between the Soviet Union in the United States, and it wasn't for many years that the legacy of Nuremberg was discovered again. It was used for international criminal courts in the Balkans, in uh, that terrible conflict in Eastern Europe. It was used to deal with genocide in Rwanda, It was used to deal with appalling atrocities in Sierra Leone. It was my privilege to be the first president of the UN War Crimes Court in Sierra Leone, which put some very bad people in prison. Charles Taylor, for example, is still there. So it looked as though at the end of the 20th century that we had come to a plan A. We delivered on the Nuremberg precedent because we had an international criminal court set up and it started to operate in 2002 and we thought it would deal with malefactors. But that unfortunately hasn't been the case. In 18 years, it's only had a few convictions, mainly of Congolese warlords. I think it's still significant and it's really uh, something that we have to keep up our sleeve. But the problem is it hasn't worked because international law has no enforcement. And the Security Council of the United Nations, which is repository of the duty to maintain human rights, has failed because of the polaxed position of America, Russia, and China. It's impossible, for example, to put Assad on trial. I think one of the saddest sights I've seen in human rights history was in 2011 
with all the demonstrators in Damascus holding up their banners, Assad to the Hague. Well, we had created too many expectations because Assad was never going to go to the Hague because Russia, which needed a seaport on the Mediterranean in Syria, protected him and vetoed British and other attempts to uh, put him there. So plan A is faltering. It can't work when the Security Council is poleaxed. So international law is not going to serve the purpose. And we have to look at enforceable law, at national law. And this is the idea behind what are called Magnitsky laws, which are targeted sanctions against abusers of human rights and those involved in serious corruption. Targeted mm. sanctions, meaning that we stop them entering our countries, our open societies, our democratic countries. We assert our values. We take their property, seize their assets, and don't allow their children into our schools and universities or their parents into our uh, hospitals or other people themselves into our casinos where they generally like to play. So they don't go to prison, but it is a method of deterring others from behaving similarly, and it is a form of punishment. Well, I think it is an inspired idea given the arguments you make for it and how it's already been operating. You show how it's been quite effective in a number of ways. And we will get to that in just a moment. But I wanted to dwell on one particular issue before we jump into that. And that was what you raised early on in the book, saying that the International Criminal Court, as you say, has been poleaxed and, quote, it exemplified the problem of a court that is dependent upon international law, not just for its principles, which are fine but for its powers. And you had quoted later in the book the fact that France and Britain have not used their veto on the Security Council for 30 years, but in the last five years, Russia has wielded it 14 times, China five and America twice. And you also note that more often these superpowers only need to threaten behind the scenes to use it and the initiative proposed will be withdrawn. I wonder given you would have observed these issues going to the Security Council for a number of years, has anything particularly changed to make uh, these countries more and more protective of their citizens and more and more likely to prevent transparency and accountability through these forums? Well, there were periods, and I think the last one was when they agreed, the last time there was agreement was over Gaddafi and uh, preventing him from attacking the citizens of Benghazi, and that was back in 2011. Since then, there have been a determination by all three of those major powers to stop international justice, except in very small and friendless countries. And I think it is probably, there was a period where Things were very hopeful in the 1990s, and uh, there was agreement on setting up war crimes courts to deal with the horrors of the Balkans. China sent judges. Russia 
sent judges. You know, it was there was a general end of 20th century determination to deal with these people, but that has fizzled out over the last 10 years. And so we have a situation where international law, except in respect to minor players, is pretty unenforceable. Well, it does sound like there clearly needs to be another option and you have just briefly outlined what that other option is. But for those who perhaps haven't been following this issue and particularly the story of Sergei Magnitsky, I wonder if you could share with us where this law really originated from and obviously in particular the advocacy of a certain person by the name of Bill Browder. Yeah, well, it started with Sergei Magnitsky, and back in 2009, 2010, he was a Russian, but he wasn't a dissident in any way. He was a tax lawyer, and as part of his work in Moscow, he discovered a fraud on his client's company. He was a client of Bill Browder, who was an American businessman, and uh, he loyally blew the whistle on it, went to the authorities, but the authorities were the same ones who were involved in the fraud, and they arrested him, threw him into prison. He was ill, and they denied severe judges, denied him bail. Negligent doctors didn't treat him, and eventually he was beaten to death, like George Floyd, but with no one watching, no cameras, like most people were tortured and beaten to death if they are behind the high walls of a prison. And uh, Bill Browder was an extraordinary man. I acted for him in that time. And he went to America and persuaded John McCain and then Barack Obama to support a law that would commemorate his faithful lawyer, And so the first Magnitsky Act was passed in 2012, and it targeted sanctions on the lickspittle judges, on the negligent doctors and the corrupt police. Well, in 2016, Barack Obama increased it, made the global Magnitsky Act, enabling them to sanction human rights violators anywhere in the world. That was followed by Canada, and then by Britain, and then by the 27 European countries. So at the moment, we have 31 open societies, which have just erected Magnitsky laws. And an Australian committee of the Australian Parliament uh, had hearings last year, and strongly recommended that we should have one too, and that will be debated in the next couple of months in Parliament. Indeed. Whether we should become the 32nd democracy to adopt a targeted sanctions law for those who are either guilty as perpetrators of human rights abuses or of aiding and abetting them, or by... Uh, involvement in serious corruption. 
Yes, and you certainly have also highlighted the various differences and limitations of some of these laws that um, have already been enacted in countries, as you say, like the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, the European Union. And there are some variations, but there's also some commonalities. And one you certainly highlight is the issue around, I guess, the process of finding or identifying people who should be listed and engaging NGOs in that process. But of course, it does seem to be very much embedded into government as a government process in these countries. And then also tied to that, the ability of the person who might be listed under this law to then challenge it if they believe they have evidence to contradict what the government believes. Could you share with us that real point, the sticking point that you identified in needing to, I guess, preserve human rights within this law, not just by identifying perpetrators, but also to ensure that we get the right ones? Yes, we're at an early stage with Magnitsky laws, which is why I wrote the book. It was the first book on the subject. And I hope there'll be more because we've got to look at how to roll them up. One problem is that they are decisions by government ministers. Invariably, the foreign minister or secretary of state. And obviously, to have the fullest information, there should be a filtering process. There should be an independent body that sits and hears evidence and recommends to the minister, because ultimately the government has to approve the decision. But it's important to allow organisations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and the actual groups that represent Uyghurs and Rohingyas and so on to have some say in the process. Now, the Australian Parliamentary Committee has recommended that there be an independent body of experts which would analyse, if possible, publicly the evidence against particular people and companies and make recommendations to the minister so it would be transparent. At the moment, in Britain, it's not transparent. There is no process of that sort. In America, it is more transparent because they do allow human rights bodies to make submissions, but there is no hearing process. So that's one way in which I think the Australian proposals are actually an improvement on uh, some of the other systems. Well, you do say if adopted, these recommendations would give Australia the best Magnitsky law to date. So it would be nice for Australia to lead on human rights in something because we certainly Mm. have our own issues here in Australia with refugees and First Nations peoples. And that's another thing you do raise is that perhaps it will put pressure on Australia to ensure that we're not being hypocritical when applying these kind of lists and um, applying high standards to people. You also raised the point of the burden of proof or standard of proof being that of an equivalent of the civil standard of proof. Do you think that that is working well in terms of the evidence that is garnered and collected so far in terms of the people who've been caught up in these laws in the 31 countries that are using them? Well, I think it's very important to understand the difference in criminal law 
and perhaps women will understand this, because when they make a complaint of rape, very rarely, or sexual assault, and it goes to a jury, the jury can't convict unless it's satisfied beyond reasonable doubt. And that's a very high standard. And that's why so many rape cases end up in not brought or acquittal. And I would like to see as a way of helping women in the present to have an organization that funds them to bring civil actions, because civil actions are decided on the balance of probabilities, more likely than not. And although you can't put people in prison as a result of a civil action, you can give damages, you can bankrupt the bastard, if you like. <laughs> and so that's the, uh, that is one satisfying result. And I think if a lot of cases of assault and domestic violence and so on were dealt with on the balance of probabilities, which is the standard we use in everyday life, what is most likely, um, I think there would be a lot more satisfaction, a lot more justice. One of the problems with international criminal law is that we apply the burden of proof beyond reasonable doubt. And that's one reason why some people who are undoubtedly guilty have been acquitted. And uh, it's, uh, it's better, I think, to proceed on the balance of probabilities, because that's a standard which is commonsensical, which people can understand. At the moment, uh, the Americans proceed on the basis of credible evidence. That's not enough. <laughs> credible evidence sometimes turns out to be incredible. <laughs> so I'd like to see uh, a standard of uh, on the balance of probabilities being the standard for procedure. The procedure is not punishment in the sense of throwing them in jail because we've got no power, but it is a standard that is uh, capable of being used to apply sanctions. Well, one particular issue that I've been thinking about with these laws, and it's certainly been weighing on my mind, and you address it in this book, is the fact that a lot of countries are reluctant to list heads of states and their partners because they have a misunderstanding about sovereign or head of state immunity. And I can think of two very clear examples and ones that you raise in the book, one being the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, which the United States intelligence has deemed to be ordered or authorised by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, and obviously carried out by people from Saudi Arabia at the consulate in Turkey. And then another example being the United Arab Emirates Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum. And anyone following that would have seen uh, Princess Latifa's videos over a number of years saying that she and her sisters had been detained unfairly and kidnapped and tortured. So I wondered if you 
you could address that because you do say that listing Mohammed bin Salman is a test for Magnitsky laws and the US has so far failed in that and as well as Britain and Canada. Yes, that's certainly true. Uh, Ironically, Britain, Canada and the US have listed everyone else. They've listed the prince's assistant who went with the mission, planned it. They've listed the doctor who sawed him up. Uh, Mm. They've listed the other thugs and and associates and the consul. But they haven't listed Mr. Big. Now, when he was asked about this by Bob Woodward, Donald Trump said, I saved his ass, uh, which is <laughs> what he meant was keeping him off the Magnitsky list. I think that in time, as we got more used to these lists, as we have a coordinated system for imposing them, I think we'll have the gumption to list people who are powerful and list people whom we see as our natural allies. And in the case of MBS, of course, uh, it's his wealth, his oil wealth and purchases of billions of dollars worth of weapons that gives him a certain immunity. So, as I say, these are early days. At the moment, he's escaped but I'm not sure that he won't be listed by Biden in the future. Well, it's interesting because obviously those two examples are people who have a huge amount of wealth and interest and enjoyment in countries in Europe and also the UK and obviously beyond there, but they certainly do have strong holdings. And you have mentioned earlier about freezing assets, about cancelling visas and banning entry for certain people, not just for those individuals, but also their family members. You point out, and something I had been thinking about is surely there needs to be, I guess, some coordination between countries so that if the EU puts them on their list, then that person who's been identified will not just move all of their assets over to London, for example, in the UK? Yes, it's very important. It's also reason why it's important for Australia to have an act, because otherwise it will become a dumping ground for dirty money. Uh, the, The power of Magnitsky legislation, even though it's not international law based, can be extraordinary. You look at, uh, I tell the story of Carrie Lam, you know, the satrap of Hong Kong, busy denying democracy. She was listed by the Americans. The American Treasury stopped her using her credit cards, and she complained bitterly that even those credit cards drawn on Hong Kong banks she couldn't use and she was having to take her salary in cash. And her salary Mm. amounted to 5 million Hong Kong dollars, and she was almost taking it home in a wheelbarrow, and it was cluttering up her house. So that gave a laugh to everyone on social media who were victims of her assault on democracy. But it does show the power of U.S. Treasury sanctions. We want to 
make use of that, obviously, for coordinated action by Australia. And you also say that it's important for non-Western states to also join up, and you did identify Japan, but also in the book Singapore as another uh, city-state that should really consider jumping on board. Yes, I think it's important that Magnitsky laws not be confined, as they are at the moment, to what I call the white West. They should actually encompass other countries, uh, particularly the members of the Commonwealth, like Malaysia and India, should be involved in the network. Jeffrey, in terms of your insight into this area, given that you have spent so long in the COVID lockdown writing this book, you've obviously also have colleagues who've been advocating on this issue as well. Where do you think there are the brightest spots? You've said Australia is one of those, but you do mention in the book areas where the Magnitsky law has been effective in providing a deterrent and or a punishment for acts that perpetrators, individuals have made. Are there any particular success stories that you're heartened by? Yes, I think even the use of Magnitsky laws against the company, it's really a parastatal in China, which sells to the world the cotton that is produced by slave labour, by Uyghur slave labour, has had some interesting ramifications because what a Magnitsky targeting process does is to name and blame and shame those who are attacking or destroying human rights. And it's interesting that not only is China losing a lot of money because Western brands are no longer purchasing their cotton, but um, it's had this knock-on effect and Adidas and Nike and all the big fashion firms have been reluctant to source their cotton from this parastatal. And that's important. They realise that they're going to be damned in the West. The only firm so far that's insisted it will keep buying slave labour cotton is Hugo Boss, which is ironic because, of course, Hugo Boss made uniforms for the Nazis for the concentration camps. But I think it's going to get an enormous blowback. So uh, all the other firms have ceased dealing with this parastatal. So, you know, it has consequences, and it is Magnitsky laws enable those consequences to be brought home not just to the individuals that are sanctioned, but to companies that do business with them in Western countries. And um, you do quote Boris Nemtsov, who was Hmm. an opposition leader in um, Russia before he was assassinated. He said, you will only stop Putin assassinating enemies in the UK if you stop his oligarch friends from sending their children to Eton, which um, certainly rang home and (laughs) makes a lot of sense. Yes, it was so true. And it encapsulated, I think, uh, poor old uh, Navalny said something similar. He said it's so important for Europe to have a Magnitsky law, so 
all of Putin's oligarch friends, instead of mooring their super yachts in Monaco, can moor them in the lovely harbours of Belarus, which, of course, is landlocked. Yes, exactly. Geoffrey, just to finish this conversation, you are obviously prolific in your writing and you cover so many different topics. Your last book, Who Owns History, certainly resonated and it seems to have had some effect and I'm sure it's not the only thing, but I did see in the news just recently that Germany is to become the first country to hand back the Benin bronzes that were looted by British soldiers in 1897 from Nigeria. So I just wanted to get your take on that, given that you'd really considered that issue in so much depth. Yes, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Who Owns History, which argued that the 19th century colonial plunder, it really was terrible. The British army, the French army, the German army, they went into Africa and they killed so many men, women and children and looted. They did the same with China, looted so much of their cultural property, and it's in museums, and it should be returned. The British Museum is the largest receiver of stolen property in the world. So it began with my view about the Parthenon marbles, which were ripped off the walls of this wonderful temple by Lord Eldon in 1802. I believe they should go back to the museum in Greece, which has been built for them, and so should other stolen property, including a very iconic bark shield, which you'll find in the British Museum, which was dropped by one of the Aborigines who was shot at by Captain Cook when he landed at Daphne Bay in April 1770. And for all, he was an amazing explorer. It was a disgraceful act to shoot at the Aborigines who were on the shore. There was no good reason. And indigenous people's legend say the man subsequently died from his bullet wounds. And he dropped the shield, that's for sure, and it was picked up and taken back on the endeavour, and it's displayed in a little small and cabinet in the British Museum, and uh, it means nothing to people who see it there, and it should be brought back to Australia and exhibited. If we had a an Indigenous culture museum, uh, it would take pride of place. It's yes. quite iconic. The first shot fired in anger by white invaders and followed by 60,000 deaths from settler violence, from alcohol and disease that uh, those settlers brought. So, you know, you, it's meaningful to Australians, but it's not meaningful where it is in the British Museum. It seems that the British Museum is still quite reticent to uh, give up many of its objects. It it has an excuse because the law prevents it. British law prevents the British Museum from parting with any of its stolen property. Mm. So it's up to Parliament and uh, this government 
is not willing to do the right thing, colonial mentality that it has. Indeed, and of course there are a number of other colonial countries, Germany included, um, and its history in Africa. But it is nice to at least see that uh, the goods that they bought that were stolen will start to go back in some small areas of art. But, um, too, President Macron took the lead, said we should not be holding the stolen property. It should go back mm. to inspire the people whose ancestors made it. Mm. So France is actually sending back a lot of its uh, Benin bronzes and some of the work from Dahomey, the masks that inspired Picasso. Mm. Well, that's really wonderful to hear. Geoffrey, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today and thank you for writing the first book on the Magnitsky Laws. It is a fantastic book and I've learnt a great deal from it and I do hope that people can pick it up and that they might be able to see you in Melbourne when you come here, I believe, on Saturday the 22nd of May. You'll be um, giving a talk. I'll be performing in Jeff's Shed. (laughs) as if it were my own (laughs) I think it's fair game you can call it Jeffrey's shed for the night (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much Jeffrey Robertson QC the book is bad people and how to be rid of them a plan b for human rights you're listening to a triple r podcast discover more podcasts from triple r exploring science technology food books social issues politics and more To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. It is really great to be with you this Tuesday and we will be here up until noon today before we hand over to the RMIT News and then Banana Lounge Broadcasting after that. So do stick around. That will start at noon. But before we do that, I get to speak to the lovely Dr. Chloe Ward. She is returning once more to talk about UK politics. Chloe is a historian and a research officer at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT. And she's also the co-host of the Barely Getting By podcast with her colleague, Dr. Emma Shortis, who is also a regular on this program. Uh, And Chloe is going to be chatting with us today broadly about UK politics, but very much diving down into the world of Scotland and the Scottish election, which just happened on Thursday. It's all very exciting. And I know a lot of people were wondering how the pandemic uh, politics would affect Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister of Scotland. And now we know. So I welcome Chloe now. Hi there, Chloe. And thanks so much for joining us again. Hey, Amy. It's a pleasure as always. It's great to talk and catch up, and I know that it's been a little while since we last spoke, and when we did last speak, one of the, I guess, success stories, you could say, of the UK government, and there are, I guess, very few of them, uh, if you were looking with a critical lens at what they've been doing during the pandemic, but one of the great success stories has been their vaccine rollout, and it does seem to have uh, enabled them to in part, come out of a very long lockdown and uh, to 
start to have a somewhat normal life, um, not completely normal, but where is the UK at now in terms of the pandemic situation and the vaccine rollout? Yeah, so look, you're, you're absolutely right about the vaccine rollout. It has been a huge success. I think at last count, 35 million people had received their first vaccination, which is more than half of the UK population. I think around 17 million have received their first dose, which is what, I mean, my maths isn't great, but I think that's close to a third of the population. So the vaccine rollout is going full steam ahead. And between that and the lockdown measures, it's certainly having an impact on COVID cases, which I think are down around around sort of 2,000-ish a day and the and the death rate from COVID is plummeting. So it's all, it is good news on that COVID front. Um, so, yeah, so that's, that means that the UK is starting to come out of that very long lockdown. I did see a lot of people on my social media timelines going out and getting their first haircuts in months <laughs> and going out to the pub for their first pints and they were all really happy about it, especially coming into a UK spring. Um, and I think the latest advice as of today from Boris Johnson is that people are allowed to, uh, allowed to cautiously hug in public. Oh, gosh. Yeah. That's going to be very risque, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I know. Yeah, the buttoned-up <laughs> British. Um, exactly. Yeah. So no, so it is. Maybe they don't want to have permission. I don't. I don't know yeah. if they really want to. Well, look, I've I've given up shaking hands with people since the pandemic, and yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not. I'm not planning on going back to it anytime soon. No. So I don't know how about how the British people will be feeling about hugs. And one of the other things they're talking about is also permitting more flights into the country, so from certain from certain locations. Mm, interesting, including, and I... including Australia, if we were allowed to leave the country. Oh right, right. Yeah. Mm, we'll see about that, won't we? Because it yeah. seems like you can't get out or come back in. So, um, yeah, it's a really closed situation here. It's not been really the case for the UK. I know that they did eventually implement some very light on form of hotel quarantine for some red spot areas. Do you know, you know how far the UK got in that approach? You know, I've got to say that's a bit of a gap in my knowledge. It was all a little bit a little bit hazy from the get-go. Um, I'm, I'm going to hazard a guess and say that the it's, it's – it's, from what I understand, and I'm not an epidemiologist, but the problem all along for the UK was both what you're saying, which is, you know, sort of a hazy interpretation or a hazy application of hard and fast rules that we know here, but also delays in imposing restrictions, and that's – the reason why they've been in they've been effectively in lockdown for you know the better part of 2021 so far yeah and one of the other um, elements I know so many Melburnians will relate to this whole staged and stepped approach to coming out of lockdown um, is that I did see initially that people were able to get takeaways from restaurants but I believe now can people actually go in and sit down and have a proper meal with people in restaurants uh, I'm not sure they can go into a restaurant but outdoor dining is is definitely on the list now Okay. So as we know, things are not always, you know, straight out. And also I've got to say, I know that our populations are a different size, but, you know, 2,000 a day is still not nothing uh, in terms of new cases. And it's really important to make sure that no new variants, I guess, start to grab hold in the UK, especially with what's happening over in India, which is an absolute tragedy. Yeah. Look, and I think um, the latest government advice seems to be that they seem to, with the vac vaccination rollout proceeding so well, they seem fairly confident that they're not risking too much in terms of new variants. Um, we know that one of the one of the variants that was that arose last year was known as the Kent variant because it popped up 
in the southeast of England in mm-hmm. the in the first place. But they seem they seem fairly confident about that, and that is really because this vaccination rollout has gone so well. Interesting, um, Chloe. There has been some controversy happening, uh, and certainly I think uh, Dominic Cummings has helped stoke that controversy, although Boris Johnson doesn't really need any assistance. Um, But we have seen a lot of leaking going out, uh, allegedly from Dominic Cummings, um, and it has also been, I guess, supported by other independent sources. So we know that it's uh, not necessarily all just about revenge, although maybe it is. Um, And we should perhaps give backstory to those who don't know Dominic Cummings, but he was uh, heavily involved in Brexit, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He was regarded as one of the masterminds of the Brexit of the Brexit strategy in the 2016 referendum, and he subsequently became um, one of Boris Johnson's principal advisers. And that was a position he 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 really enjoyed. He has all sorts of grand plans for the remaking of the British state. Um, but Dominic Cummings went from being, you know, a I guess sort of a background figure in Brexit in Brexit and in government to being sort of front and centre and, you know, on all the front pages around this time last year or maybe a little, maybe it was April 2020 when he notoriously uh, drove to Durham to visit his parents-in-law during the lockdown and that was sort of the, the beginning of the end for Cummings' public role because he was, you know, it was a very clear case of, oh, well, apparently there's one rule for the, for the general population and a different rule for Boris Johnson's special advisers. Mm. And it's not the only time that we've seen this kind of special treatment being doled out, not just to advisers, but also business friends and family friends of uh, government ministers and also Boris Johnson. Yes, and that is the source of um, Dominic Cummings' decision to to go public. Um, well, there were the, it's, it's a complicated story, but... Basically, it was claimed that Cummings was responsible for leaking some private text messages between Johnson and um, the billionaire James Dyson. Cummings has de- has denied being the source of the leak, but he's also taken the opportunity to really go to town on on Boris Johnson. I think he called him, I'm quoting here, mad and totally unethical. <laughs> it's a little bit hypocritical, isn't it? Well, a little bit. And, yeah, I think to be honest, I think you're right that, um, I mean, I mentioned before that Dominic Cummings, he styles himself as something of a an intellectual and and he's, you know, he's seeking to revolutionise the way the government is run in, in the UK. But this, to me, reeks of personal vengeance after he was ousted at the end of last year. So it's not, it's not high-minded principle that's driving him. No. And, well, one of the really shocking um, leaks that came out, and it was on the front page of the Daily Mail uh, in the UK. This is still a printed newspaper, I should say, not the website necessarily, but it was on the front page of the Daily Mail. And this was a quote that uh, had been leaked about Boris Johnson. And to give context, I believe it was said uh, allegedly after Boris Johnson reluctantly approved a second England-wide lockdown late last year, and he was they were talking about um, the prospect of a third lockdown, which did eventually happen in uh, January, I believe. And the quote um, that was splashed across the front page uh, that is alleged that Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of Britain, said was, quote, no more effing lockdowns. Let the bodies pile high in their thousands. Yeah, 
isn't that I, I just yeah I mean I just kind of want to let that sink in it's disgusting yeah, isn't it absolutely and it demonstrates and just a complete contempt for the British public which you know which put him in the position he's in with an overwhelming parliamentary majority at the end of 2019 um Boris Johnson has of course he's denied those denied those remarks of you know of course he had to but it seems fairly well established by press sources that he did make that comment and i think that you know i mean it's it's a contemptible thing to say but i think it's also it's part of a pattern of behavior for boris johnson you know one not only in in the contempt that he has for the public um but also his you know it's sort of his i think his what is a talent for rhetorical flourishes and dramatic turns of speech that has for once rebounded on him Mm. Well, it certainly caused a lot of controversy and backlash from family members of people who did die from coronavirus because the British government was very reluctant to enter into any lockdowns. And of course, we know the controversy around this concept of herd immunity, a natural so-called herd immunity of letting the virus rip through a country, which clearly um, hasn't worked in the case of the UK and in other countries. And um, that's just, I guess, one other example where people are saying, well, look what you have done, your inaction speaks volumes and also what your attitude is is quite revealing to um, what ordinary British people mean to you. It's kind of this um, this weird kind of ruling British elite situation. Oh, it absolutely is. But the other side of that is that while, you know, I think um, there's been a lot of attention paid to just, you know, the, just how horrible, like, Boris Johnson's attitude to the public is, it doesn't seem to be making a dent in, the, in opinion polling no. with regard to the Conservative Party because they're still riding high on, I think, 40 40%. In the in the you know forty percent consistently in polling, and do you think it's the vaccine rollout that saved them, or is there something else at play? I think there's some. I think there's something else at play. I think that the the vaccine rollout certainly has given them a bit of insurance and a bit of a buffer against this sort of criticism. It's helped. It's helped people, I think, to start to forget the horrible the you know horrible mistakes and the mismanagement of the first year in the first year of the pandemic. But I think it also it also says something about about the British public, and you know, and actually, I will say this, you know, to be more specific, sections of the British public's attitudes towards political leadership—they don't, you know, there are people who, and lots of people apparently, who, who see that what Boris Johnson is saying and his attitude is utterly is contemptible, but they don't expect anything else from their political leaders. And I think that there are, you know, also people who see that as long as the Tory a Tory government is offering them something that they want, which I think really comes down to a degree of economic security and political validation, then they're happy to go along with them, regardless of what, what, they, what they're on the record as, you know, as having said about mm. the public. And there, let's talk about um, the British elections. There were some kind of key indicators, um, particularly I believe there was a seat that Labor has usually held under Jeremy Corbyn, the previous Labor leader, um, but they did quite poorly in this circumstance yeah, in Hartlepool. So, you know, the the Labor Party made, a, I think they made they made a lot of mistakes in that ca- in that campaign. Um, one of them was their choice of. Ca- I have to go back to say, you know, this was a, this was a by election that was held last week, um, alongside the local elections in the UK. Their choice of candidate, they chose a an adamant Remainer who was also an ex MP to name Paul Williams to contest the seat. And this was in, in, a, in a place that I believe voted 60% in favour of Brexit. 
So it was it was seen as symptomatic of you know the new the new administration and the Labor Party's approach of imposing you know these imposing Remainer candidates on electorates that voted voted for Brexit who were seen as, you know, being completely contrary to the wishes of, of that community. So the Tories were very well positioned to sweep to sweep the Hubble by-election, which they did. Mm, it seems like a very basic political mistake to make. Well, it seems like a very basic political mistake and a very basic political mistake to be made by um, Peter Mandelson, who is rumoured to have been the sort of hand behind the wheel in the Labor operation in Hartpool and also in um, Keir Starmer's office. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Mandelson, who was a chief advisor to Tony Blair and uh, had, had the nickname the Prince of Darkness. Interesting. If that gives you any indication <laughs> of the sort of person we're talking about. Yep, so probably should know better. Yeah, yeah, you'd think so. This is, yeah. um, And this has been part of the Labor Party's move under Keir Starmer to make, it, make itself look more competent and professional, but I think the results... At in Hartlepool, but also across some of the local, the other local elections, demonstrate that that's really not the case. Mm. Well, before we get to Scotland, I just want to also raise, as you said here, we've had, um, or they've had local elections, and we did see that London Mayor Sadiq Khan was re-elected for a second term in office. He's obviously one of the prominent uh, people who, you know, are mayor, and of course we all know that Boris Johnson used to be the Mayor of London, so it is, you know, quite a high-profile gig. Um, It seems that he won 55.2% of the vote and he was the first Muslim to be elected to head a major Western city. What are your thoughts about what that result says? I think that result says... It says a lot about the Tory candidate who wasn't wasn't very strong. Um, I think that Sadiq Khan, you know, he did, he'd actually lost, I think it was perhaps, um, don't quote me on this, actually you're going to have to quote me on this, aren't you, <laughs> uh, lost 4% um, compared to his last his last election result. So it's not exactly a ringing endorsement of Sadiq Khan's approach and I think that he's in a he's in a difficult position because he is very much in the mould of those, sort of, you know, the, the self-styled professional competent politicians who are taking back control of the Labor Party. But he's also the mayor of London, and London is, you know, London is in many ways the, I guess, the the beating heart of the of the, you know, the um, the Corbynite movement, um, and that's where, you know, a lot of the sort of the young, young underemployed, casualised, precarious, university educated people who really are emerging as Labour's base vote, he's representing them, and he's not necessarily the person who they want to represent them. So I think that one of the mm. interesting things for Sadiq Khan going forward is, you know, how progressive a policy can he push on things like, especially like housing in particular? And also, is he is he actually vulnerable in the future to a challenge not from the right but from the left? Indeed, yeah. No, it's going to be uh, very interesting. And we will get back to Corbynites and Labor in a moment, but we do need to talk about Scotland to get to that point. Um, And that is certainly an interesting situation that we've... uh, found ourselves in because I know we've discussed this before we've talked about Scotland's response to the pandemic which has been a little bit different to England's and Boris Johnson's approach and they themselves um, had separate lockdown measures and time frames and um, managed their own NHS symptom uh, system in Scotland so really Nicola Sturgeon although there are some things she doesn't have control over in terms of the funding that they're 
they're receiving from Westminster on a range of stimulus measures, for example, and supports for business, it was um, some, a big question, I guess, as to whether the pandemic and COVID-19 would affect her um chances of being re-elected as First Minister of Scotland and um, whether the SNP would be, um, you know, successful in this election. And it really has um, led to a fairly resounding positive response from the Scottish people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, you can't... um so Nicola Sturgeon's approach to the pandemic was, it was very, like you said, it was very distinct from England's approach. Um, I think it was also, it's also been taken as kind of testimony to the to how de- how devolved powers really can work and can work effectively, and that's the case in Wales as well. But of course, you know that can't be that can't be distinguished necessarily from the independence issue. And you know you have to when when you think of Nicola Sturgeon showing quite openly her, you know, I guess her disdain for Boris Johnson's hesitancy and, you know, and what she saw as as stuff-ups in England compared with Scotland's approach, that's not just about the public health issue. That's also about building up the case for independence. And I think she certainly sees that she has that, I guess there's, there's some steam building behind that coming out of this, the election results. Mm. And, yeah, there there certainly was a very distinct, not just uh, approach in terms of policy approach, but even in the tone and the way that they communicated to the Scottish people. I know there was criticisms about it and, you know, every government has had critiques, uh, but it does seem that... um, Nicola Sturgeon really took an approach that was to be as transparent as possible, as calm, considered, rational, logical, measured. Everything was, you know, about the evidence. Um, Everything that the evidence they were using was being presented to the people so people could feel confidence in that evidence when they needed to uh, go into harsher lockdowns in certain zones or areas. And that even that was a little bit controversial in the fact that they didn't necessarily universally lockdown Scotland, but I guess it is in a very different situation given it has some very remote parts that are far less populated. But I wonder whether you could share with us some observations about Nicola Sturgeon's leadership style, um, given that it's been so successful. Well, I think that you're, you've really pinpointed some, pointed something there, which is it's very it's very rational, it's very calm, it's very expert-led, and I think she's done a really quite an impressive job of, you know, both both conveying authority and the authority of the science that is, you know, that is sitting behind the decisions that government is making, but also by make by, you know, being very public in those disclosures, being very, you know, very present in addressing the public, also making people feel like they have some control over it. So they haven't they have knowledge, they have understanding. And that's, you know, of of the virus. They they understand what the government's reasoning is at the end of the day when they are imposing quite harsh measures. And, again, you know, I think, you know, if I think of any other world leader or one, you know, one in our own region who that compares to, then it has to be Jacinda Ardern in in, in New Zealand. So perhaps not not quite as warm. Um, but I think Nicola Sturgeon can be quite funny at times. Yes. Yeah, but also, again, you know, so I guess sort of to continue that comparison, um, just as there is a comparison to be made between Jacinda Ardern and New Zealand and, you know, the, the mixed messages that we've had from our federal government around the virus, especially in the early days, there's that contrast between what Nic- the Operation Nicola Sturgeon's running in Scotland and the real confusion um, down south in England. 
Mm. And I know that uh, it was really interesting towards, I think it was almost at the end of the election campaign, that we did see a confrontation in Glasgow Southside um, where Nicola Sturgeon was campaigning. She had, like, no real clear security um, except just a few campaigners who were holding placards next to her. Uh, It was really quite low-key, which is kind of also her leadership style. She just seems to be very, like, independent and, um, yeah, confident in her authority. Uh, But we did see this confrontation between herself and uh, a former deputy leader of Britain First, which I guess says Mm -hmm. it all in the title of that um, party. And it was, I believe, Jada Franson who accused Nicola Sturgeon of flooding, quote, the country with immigrants. Um, And we did see Nicola Sturgeon really quite vigorously push back on her in the street where she was being confronted, calling her a fascist and a racist, which I think a lot of people were very proud of. Um, and I know I saw some um, people of Indian descent saying that they it, that it meant a lot to them that Nicola Sturgeon came out so clearly and strongly um, supporting and making clear that uh, migration and diversity, cultural diversity is something that, um, make Scotland better. Yeah, yeah, and you know we really we see fewer and fewer politicians all over all over the world who are willing to do that, who are willing to stand up and call call a fascist a fascist. Mm. So I think that it was it was quite an inspiring moment. You know, yeah, like as you said, for people who have been victimised by racists and fascists and people who are against open borders and immigration. But also for, you know, for the wider Scottish public, that's, you know, a moment of, I guess, real national pride that they do have a leader who will stand up to these people. And I think perhaps jealousy for the rest of us who, you know, we don't see, we don't see that from our, from our elected representatives too often. And that's, you know, from conservatives and from progressives. Absolutely. I think, yeah, it it is very Scottish to, you know, say what you think, but she was doing something which does have or take political capital and um, it shouldn't, sadly, to actually call a spade a spade and to call out inappropriate and racist behaviour. But it is something that is a bright spot in some particularly dark political times that Europe more broadly finds themselves in and uh, also the UK, Scotland included. Um, Chloe, given that the Scottish National Party have run on a platform being pro-Scottish independence for a number of years now, we did see a referendum, the first referendum on Scottish independence semi-recently. It wasn't successful in the end, but we have seen Nicola Sturgeon, uh, given her significant win, um, and maybe we should... I guess, highlight what the overall numbers are so people can get a sense of what Holyrood, the Scottish Parliament, will broadly look like in terms of the makeup, the political makeup of it. Um, I I was interested in the fact that uh, we, the Liberal Democrats still exist to a very, very small extent uh, in Scotland. Funnily enough, in the Shetland Islands and the Orkney Islands, which is quite literally right up the top, 
of Scotland. Um, but then we did see some of those other um, Hebrides, the, the more kind of inner Hebridean islands like Skye, um, still going to the SNP, the Scottish National Party. So if you look at a map of um, Scotland and you see the kind of picture of the seats, uh, it's really interesting to see the breakdown of SNP, Conservative, Labor, Green and Liberal Democrat. And maybe I'll throw it over to you, Chloe, who's the expert in uh, talking about these things. Yeah, so look, I think the, the key number there is that is 64. Six, the, the SNP won 64 of, I think, 129 seats in the Scottish Parliament, which for those of you who are way ahead of me with your calculations, that means that they were one seat short of an overall majority. So they increased their vote. They didn't quite get to that majority that, you know, I think they were hoping they would have, that would they were hoping that they would have. But nonetheless, they are claiming they do have a mandate for a referendum on independence because eight seats went to the Greens who who have likewise committed to, a, to an independence referendum. So I think the, the really important thing to take away from this shifting landscape of Scottish electoral politics is that there is now that supermajority in the Scottish Parliament that wants a referendum on independence within the next within the next few years. Mm. And interestingly, I mean, this was something I um, was kind of vaguely aware of, which was that the Scottish Parliament was really not set up to have a majority in the sense that they didn't expect that there would be, you know, such a successful um, party. And we have actually seen the SNP be in a majority before by themselves. Um, but as you say, they didn't quite get over the line with the majority this time. But in fact, not getting a majority isn't a sign of electoral failure. It's actually a sign of electoral success to get that close. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's much more... Um and it's the, same, it's the same in Wales, actually, where it's, it's much more of a, I guess, a European-style parliamentary system where there is an expectation that, you know, that a, a winning party in an election doesn't necessarily have a majority, but they are, they do have to work with other parties. So, you know, I guess, I guess similar to our previous um, Greens Labor agreement on, on minor, minority government back a decade ago, so the SNP, they're close enough to a majority that they will be the, the decisive force in parliament, but they still have to have to court one those green votes, but also I think particularly votes from from you know what is left of the Labor Party. Yes, well I did say that they got twenty two seats, the Conservative thirty one, uh, yeah. and apparently Labor lost two seats. Yes, yes, and that um, I mean it's not quite as bad as what's been happening in national elections. It's sorry in, in national elections for the whole of the United Kingdom to Labor lately, but yeah, they're certainly on the decline. In, in Scotland, and I don't think they see any, any clear way out. Mm. Well, I'm going to play a short clip of First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon's um, speech, where she's reflecting on Scottish independence and talking about um, what will likely continue to be a stalemate, um, although there may be court action to try and uh, get another referendum on Scottish independence up. Um, this is a, a, about a one-minute clip from Nicola Sturgeon herself, uh, which I'm going to play for you, and then we'll um, discuss what has been said uh, when we come back. Both the SNP and the Scottish Greens stood on a clear commitment to an independence referendum within the next parliamentary term. And both of us made clear that the timing of a referendum should be decided by a simple majority of MSPs in the Scottish Parliament. So in 
No way can a referendum be described as just a demand of me or of the SNP. It is a commitment made to the people by a clear majority of the MSPs who have been elected to our national parliament. It is the will of the country. And let me be very clear about this. If the Tories make such an attempt, they won't be placing themselves in opposition to the SNP. They will be standing in direct opposition to the will of the Scottish people. And they will demonstrate conclusively that the UK is not a partnership of equals and astonishingly that Westminster no longer sees it as a voluntary union of nations. That in itself would be a most powerful argument for Scotland becoming an independent country. Oh, that absolutely gets my heart beating. I've got to say I'm feeling the Scottish nationalist vibe for independence there. Um, Chloe, we uh, have listened to that clip. What are your thoughts on it? And uh, I know I certainly um, am pro-independence, so I'm not going to hide that. But what do you think about that kind of rhetoric from Nicola Sturgeon? And is she really... Uh, taking it up to Boris Johnson. She's look. She's raising the stakes there. It's you know, and this is this. I think it's easy to think about this as you know, she's sort of putting Boris Johnson in in his box by you know basically daring him to reject that to reject the push for a referendum on independence. But she has a lot to lose here too. Like if you know, if if, if that mm. referendum gets up, and you know, my. I'm not calling this a prediction. My gut, in my gut feel, is that there will be a referendum in the next few years. If that fails, then that's her. That's her over. That's her. You know. That, I mean, that's her. Like her reason. Her reason for political being done and dusted. So I think it's quite. It's pretty bold of her to one call this the will of the people um, so explicitly, but two to really you're really take it up to Boris Johnson because it's risking a lot for her as well. Absolutely. And it does remind me of discussions we had back when Brexit was being voted on. We saw that uh, Scotland really rejected the idea of Brexit, and that has often been tied to a call for or renewed calls for Scottish independence. Do you think that this idea of Brexit and how it's affected multiple areas of the UK um, continues to be another kind of reason or justification for leaving the UK? Yes, and I think that what what becomes very clear watching this, watching and listening to this clip, is that what Nicola Sturgeon is trying to do is make Boris Johnson out to be the Prime Minister of Brexit and the Prime Minister of England. Boris yeah. Johnson is a very unpo- is very very unpopular in Scotland, and she is taking she's taking advantage of that to really, I guess you know, pit Scotland independence. Um, I guess that affinity for Europe, if not, you know, any immediate moves to rejoin the EU against against Brexit and English nationalism. Mm. It is really interesting um, because we saw after this election result and even before this intimation that uh, Westminster and particularly Boris Johnson would have to try and throw money at Scotland to try and win them over and convince them that they should stay in the UK. I mean, Scottish the Scottish people in general don't strike me as people who can just be bought. Well, and I think that that's what Nicola Sturgeon is absolutely banking on. It's, you know, and she's making She's making it very clear that this is about more than money. And, you know, besides which I think it's very easy to cast doubt on any promises coming from this Conservative government in particular 
to to you know I, I guess adequately fund Scotland, given you know Boris Johnson's I guess basic contempt for contempt for the country. So yeah, she's making it very clear that this is about more than you know this is about more than regional development funds. This is more about more about more than you know cash in the bank and North Sea um, North Sea oil reserves. It's about Scottish independence, Scottish Scottish I guess. Uh, the integrity of Scotland as a nation and, dare I say it, Scottish identity. Mm, no, it's, um, I mean, as I said at the start of the interview, there is a very, very long history, a complicated but dark history between England and Scotland and a lot of blood has been spilt and there is a lot still tied up in Scottish national identity that is very, very distinct from English identity. Yeah, there is. And that's, I think, that's exactly what she's alluding to when she talks about the idea of a union, a union of consent. Mm. So a, a union that Scotland has entered into by consent rather than one that it is being compelled or forced into by England, because I think that that's, you know, the, um, I guess, the dominant image of the union for many people in Scotland. And, you know, and it is, of course, it's much more complex than that. But, you know, there is that sort of dark history that she's quite... You know, quite kind of obliquely, she is she is referring to that in the mm. speech. And Chloe, finally, let's talk about the complications for UK Labor more broadly, who really don't seem like they've come out as winners in any real sense. Uh, and certainly, there's been a lot of ongoing tensions between Keir Starmer and the party's left wing and those who were supportive of Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and we have seen. After these elections, uh, a Labor shadow cabinet reshuffle, uh, which has also included Angela Rayner, who was um, the deputy of uh, Labor. And I, I wonder if you could um, disentangle the confusion around what happened with Angela Rayner and what this all means for UK Labor, because it seems that she was almost being held up as the um, the scapegoat or the the problem um, in terms of the Labor's poor electoral outcomes. Yeah, so Angela Rayner, to go back, Angela Rayner is, she's a, well, I'm going to, I'm going to put a caveat on, the, on it, but she is a, she's a left, a left MP who, she's a, she's a working class woman representing a northern seat. She has a very, you know, a very moving and moving back story that I think is really testimony to the power of what the trade union movement and what the Labor movement and what the Labor Party can give to ordinary working people. She, you know, she left school at, I think, age 16 with no qualifications and then eventually she rose to become the deputy leader of the Labor Party. So she is kind of a totemic figure. Last, when she accepted the deputy the deputy leader slot last year after Jeremy Corbyn left and, and Starmer was elected as the Labor Party leader, um, she was seen as kind of betraying the left and betraying in particular her friend, Rebecca Long-Bailey, who was the left candidate in that election. So she's kind of, so she is that sort of totemic figure. And when she was very early on in the wash-up from these local elections and particularly the Labor's failure in Hartlepool, when she was sort of pinned with the blame and threatened with being removed as party chair, there was this very rapid upsurge of support for her. And I think that Keir Starmer and his allies quickly saw that if she, you know, if she was unceremoniously dumped, then she's going to emerge as a very clear challenge, a challenger and a rival for the leadership in the very near future. So what's actually eventuated is she's just got sort of moved around a bit, which, yeah, which is um, very confusing. And I, and I think what this speaks to more broadly is that Keir Starmer and his team don't know what they're doing. They don't have a clue what they're doing.
Mm, it is really disturbing to watch uh, them flail around and yeah. and not actually make any dents, certainly given how uh, problematic the UK Tory party has been and so many uh, very, very public scandals that they have been involved with. Yeah, and I think that, that I think I've said this to you before, Amy, it's because Labor and the Labor right in particular is obsessively focused on its left wing and purging any remnants of Corbynism within the party rather than dealing with the actual problem, the actual threat, which is, you know, the, their direct opponents, the, the Tory party. The other thing I'd say about that is, that, you know, this this is being painted as a picture of, you know, of like irredeemable lo- loss for Labor across the whole electorate in the local elections. But there are examples of Labor actually doing well and, you know, maintaining or even advancing its hold on certain on certain local councils, like for instance, for instance Preston, which has a long-standing Labor government, which has del- delivered you know some really incredible, important, innovative reforms and economic development strategies. There, Labor managed to hold on to all its seats. So there are examples of Labor doing well, but they're not the examples where it's being you know its strategy is being led by by the parliamentary Labor Party in 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 London. Mm. Chloe, it's been so illuminating to chat with you and an absolute joy as well. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us again to talk about UK politics and Scotland in particular. You're very welcome, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.